Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. You know, I, every, every week it's on my mind that, and I believe this fully, some absolutely amazing things would happen if when we gather here, we were to hear the message, hear the word of God, and we would leave here, and we would say, you know what, we're actually going to do something this week about this message that we have heard. Like some incredible things would happen, and this morning, the message I, I have for you, maybe more than most weeks, this has been on my mind, and so I want to pray for you this morning, and pray for me that the Holy Spirit would move our hearts to application. So would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Oh God, would you come this morning to direct our hearts and direct our minds, that we would be not only hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word, and in so doing, we would not be deceived, we would not be lost, we would not be crushed by this world and the challenges that we face, but we would be moved forward into faithfulness and into abundant life, that we might be full of Christ's joy, that we might taste and experience your peace, and that we might be moved to be a blessing to the world around us. God, this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. I love this scene. I mean, it's an amazing moment and an amazing clip. Simba. I wish I spoke like him. Remember. Remember who you are. Of course, Simba is the, the son of Mufasa the king. He's the son of the king. He's heir to the throne. But Simba, out of fear and out of confusion, has run from who he truly is. And he's living life apart from the truth about his identity, apart from who 
He, he really is deep down. And here's the thing. I know it's a Disney movie. I know it's an animated film. But the reality is, the truth is that most of us live just like this, where we are ruled by our fears. We are ruled by our insecurities. We are driven by our hurts, both those we've received and those that we have given to others. We're driven by our ambitions. We're driven by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And many of us, if not most of us, spend most of our lives trying to answer the identity of question. And this is a humankind problem. It's not a legacy problem just here in our church. It's not just an American problem or a 2021 problem. It is a humankind problem for all time. People in every place of the entire earth, maybe the greatest pursuit and challenge of their life has been asking, answering, and clarifying, who am I? And what's my place in this world? And you realize this, that who you think you are, who you see yourself as, determines so much about how you live your life, how you face the circumstances of your life, and how you act and react to the things of this world. How you view yourself, how you see yourself on the inside determines so much about your outlook and your behavior. In fact, Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself... So he is, or in other words, the way you see yourself on the inside really determines so much about how you are going to view and do the the rest of your life. It will begin to shape and determine your identity and your posture in the rest of this world. And maybe you know this. I hope you do. If you don't, I hope you'll hear me on this. Sometimes the way you view yourself on the inside tells the truth, but a lot of times the way you see yourself on the inside tells lies about who you really are. You know, there's a a psychological, sociological study done in the early 90s. Maybe you've heard of this. It was called the SCAR experiment. I don't know if you've heard of this study. It was a pretty fascinating point of research. Researchers brought uh, 10 volunteers in, and the point of the study was to take a group of people and to do something to mar their physical appearance and send them out into public and learn how do they interact with with the public and how do people view someone who has a disfigurement of some sort. So they brought in 10 volunteers, and with Hollywood tricks and, and makeup artists, they put a gruesome scar across the left cheek of each of the 10 volunteers. Tears. And when the makeup artists had placed this, this nasty-looking scar across their face, they gave each volunteer an opportunity to gaze at themselves in the mirror and to get a good look at what they look like now and what people were going to see them like when they went out into public. And after every person had had some time to themselves to look in the mirror and to take it all in, they were told that the makeup artist needs to do one final step of sealant to make sure, to ensure that the scar stays in place and, and wears well as they go out and begin to interact with the community. What they didn't know without telling the volunteers is the makeup artist actually was removing the scar from their face. And you can kind of see where this is going. Without telling them, they removed the scar, letting them believe that it was still in place. And then they were sent out into the community. Remember, this is the early 90s, so they weren't taking selfies like every five seconds. But they were sent out into the community to observe and take notice on how do people view them and how do people interact with them now that they had this disfigurement across their face. Can you guess how the study went? Well, what happened is each of the people went out and 10 volunteers came back and this is what they reported. They found that people in the public were consistently more rude to them than they were when they didn't have the scar. In fact, they said that people didn't treat us with near the amount of kindness that we're used to. And one comment came in from one of the volunteers. They said, 
people kept staring at my scar. Everywhere I went, people just stared at me. I couldn't believe how rude they were staring at me, but the scar, it really wasn't there. And every volunteer said that they felt more embarrassed, they felt more self-conscious as they went out of the, into the public, and yet there was nothing wrong with their face, with their appearance. It was just in their head because they believed it was there. They viewed the entire world and every interaction through the lens of, I have this nasty scar across my face. And the point of the study, what it was intending to reveal, and it did, is that if you believe something is true, you begin to give it power over you. And that was the, the experience of each of the volunteers as they came back. What people say about us, or what we think people are saying about us, or what we think people may think about us, begins to shape our identity and begins to have a major impact in the way we view and do the rest of our life. And if you think about the Lion King story, Simba forgot who he was. And when he did, there was a personal loss. I mean, he's having fun in the jungle with Timon and Pumbaa dancing, pretending like you know, Hakuna Matata is the theme of his life. But you get to this moment and, and we're meant to understand that he knew deep down he was missing something, that something wasn't straight in his life. It wasn't right. And he was hiding from who he really was. But it wasn't just Simba who was in trouble. The whole kingdom, if you've watched the movie, and if you haven't by now, spoiler alert, it came out in 1994. The entire kingdom suffered because he didn't live, the son of the king didn't live as the son of the king. And most of you probably know where I'm going now. Sometimes we think that the greatest challenge to our life as a Christian, to experiencing God's blessing, to experiencing God's peace in the midst of life's storms, to walking in abundant life, sometimes we believe the greatest challenge to being a church that's a blessed church and that's a blessing to the community is the devil and his minions and all of the external challenges that are thrown our way. But I think we know deep down that more often than not, the greatest challenge to the Christian's life or to our life as a whole is that we forget who we are. We forget who we are in Christ, and because we forget who we are, we don't live out who we are, and it doesn't apply itself. Who we are in the moments in life when we need most to remember, and we experience a loss Sometimes it's a spiritual dissonance where you wouldn't put words to it, but you know deep down something in me just isn't right. I, I, I come to church, I read the Bible, I sing the songs, I go to group, I talk about my life, but nothing really ever seems to be synced up in my life. Or sometimes maybe we feel something like a spiritual depression. And maybe you wouldn't know to call it that or even to think of it in that way, but your soul would think of it in that way. Your soul would say, I'm experiencing a spiritual depression, and it's not just us that experience the loss and the disconnect or the dissonance spiritually, but the world around us is at a loss and suffering when we don't live as who we truly are in Christ. Grab your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Titus chapter 3. Remember, Paul's been writing to Titus here. Titus is a Christian. Titus is a pastor. Titus has been given a great deal of responsibility in the churches in Crete. He's there to set them up, to lead them, to disciple them, to establish leaders who would guide and guard the doctrine and direction of the church, to establish leaders who would set the mold, be the model of what it looks like to be servant leaders, both for the church and for the community around them. 
And he's there to set the church in order so that the church's impact would far outlast Titus's own lifetime, but it would last for, for all of the days until Christ returns. And before Paul hangs up with Titus, he deals with the identity question. So we're going to look at this morning, what does Paul say that we should always remember and never forget? Who does Paul say that we are in Christ? Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3, Paul says to Titus, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the Word of God. And I just want to make a few observations, a few points about what Paul has said to Titus in this first generation of, of Christians in Crete. First point I want to make is that we must remember who we were without Jesus. We shouldn't forget that. We must remember who we were without Jesus. Verse 3 again says, for we too once were what? We are foolish. We're disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Verse 3 doesn't need a lot of explanation. I don't need to define these words because we know what they mean from our own experience. And sadly, that means we carry, we experience some amount of guilt and shame for who we once were because guilt and shame are kind of the universal baggage of the human heart, aren't they? We feel those things. We know those things. Christian philosopher Paul Tillich said, it's impossible, listen to this, it's impossible to, be, to have both a sensitive conscience and a clear conscience at the same time, for sensitive conscience is inevitably a guilty conscience. Do you see what I mean there? I played that out throughout the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, it was their guilt that drove them to hiding from God when he was walking in the garden in the, the cool of the day. Think about King David. Guilt is what drove David to call out, to cry out to God in Psalm 51 and say, God, I know my transgressions. I feel them. They're weighing me down. They are ever before me. Isaiah, when he's in the temple, he's confronted by God, and he goes, oh, God, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Guilt. Drove him to say that. When the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery to the feet of Jesus and said, what are you going to do now? Jesus said, look, any of you who has not sinned, cast the first stone. And it's guilt that drove all of the Pharisees to walk away with their heads hanging in, in shame. Paul, who wrote this letter to Titus, is the same guy who wrote to the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome. In Romans 7, he gives the famous confession. He says, look, I try to do right, and my heart wants to do the right thing, but I also don't want to do the right thing, and sometimes I want to do the wrong thing. Even I, the Apostle Paul, continue to struggle with sin. And then he goes on and says, thank the good God above that there is no consequence condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how he begins Romans 8. 
According to the psalmist, God has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Paul wrote in Romans 4, 7, God would forgive our sins. Listen to this. He would cover them up. He would bury them down beneath the ground. Plainly, the Bible teaches when God forgives our sin, He he forgets our sins. He puts them out of His mind. He puts aside anything that would seek to destroy us, anything that would keep us separate from Him. And it's intentional on His part. It's a decision He makes to forget anything that might separate us from Him once we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So why should we remember what God has chosen to forget? Right? If God has put these things aside from His mind, why should we remember who we were without Jesus? I mean, even, even Paul to the Philippians, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain for, for what lies ahead, I press on, I don't look back. And yet he tells Titus, don't forget who we once were. He writes to the Ephesian Christians and he says this, listen to this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them... We too, Paul says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. And then verse 11, therefore remember, remember that you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from His family, from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, outsiders, those who did not belong to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Why should we remember what God has chosen to forget? I think Paul would say first that we should remember so that we would remain humble and not grow arrogant. I think Paul would say we should remember so that we can have a greater and a deepening understanding and appreciation for our salvation. Not that we would be left in lostness or be depressed or crushed by who we once were, but that our joy would increase in the experience of God's grace. Not that we would be destroyed or set apart from Him, but oh, what a joy that He brought me from there into this new place. We should remember so that we can celebrate what God has done in our life. God only remembers for our good. He doesn't remember what would destroy us. He remembers for our our good. And so it's good for us to remember who we were apart from Him so we can grow in celebration and understanding of who we are now and how we came to be this way. The context of Titus 3.3 is about how a Christian should orient themselves in a world that is rejecting God altogether, how uh, Christians should orient themselves around people, even people in authority who are deep in sin, who are deep in foolishness, who have no clue as to how to honor God with their life. They're just plain wrong. That's the context of of verse 3. And what Paul says here is, you should remember that we too once were just like that. We, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were enslaved to various lusts and sins. It's not that they're so wrong and I'm so right. We all were so wrong. 
Don't forget who you once were apart from Christ. In other words, you should be careful being so critical and judgmental of others' wrongs because you too were just as wrong as them. And some of you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, your family was involved in church, your parents are great disciples, and, and, and I've asked you, I've said, you know, when, when did you turn to Christ? And you're like, I, I've, I've always been a, a Christian, which, by the way, you can't have always been a Christian. There's always a moment. There's a moment where you go, I no longer am trusting myself and my deeds or my culture or my family of heritage or, or my church's work for my salvation, but I have laid my hands, my life in, in Jesus' hands. There's a moment, right? But some of you, you didn't spend enough time walking in this deception that your sins grew to such a place that they matched the deadness of your heart apart from Christ. You were too young or too naive or just too morally bound to go and do some thing that we would all shake our finger at, and yet you too were just as separated from Christ as the, the deepest, darkest sin that we would all quickly criticize. Paul's saying, don't be so quick to shake your finger at others. We all, we all stood in that place at one time, but of course, it seems like every time the Bible calls us to remember our past sins, it immediately follows a declaration of the gospel. And I want you to see that here. We must remember how God brings change to who we are. Listen to verse 4. Remember who you were, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Salvation from ourselves. Salvation from that guilt and that shame that is the universal baggage of the human heart. Salvation from deception. Salvation from enslavement to all kinds of lusts and passions. Salvation from having to prove ourselves and justify our existence came not because of anything we learned or anything that we did or accomplished, but because His kindness turned towards us in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation, transformation, and life came when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. There's a picture of this in the Old Testament that I think is helpful. I practiced this name all week long because sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you have to do that before you say them out loud. Mephibosheth. Come on, give me some love. That was good, right? Mephibosheth, I probably said it 200 times this week, and some of you I know are, are waiting on a baby to be born soon in the near future, and if you haven't chosen a name yet for that baby, Mephibosheth is a great Bible name that you could use to name your newborn child. I would love that, and you can say, I got that from my pastor. The story of Mephibosheth, I almost messed it up there, the story of Mephibosheth is that he was the grandson of, of King Saul who was the cruel king who had turned his back on God and trusted in himself and lived a life of cruelty once he turned his back on God. Mephibosheth was the grandson of the king, which meant he was a prince and meant that he was an, an heir. He was in line for the throne at some point to rule over the people. 
Well, when the day came that Saul was killed and his kingdom was overthrown and new leadership came into place, Mephibosheth was a young boy still at this time. And the woman who was raising him and caring for him was afraid for his life because all of the people of the family were running into hiding when Saul was killed. And so she grabbed up the boy and took off running. Now, Mephibosheth already had an issue with his his feet to where he had trouble walking. But when she grabbed him in the chaos that was happening in the moment, they fell. And he had a, a greater injury that led to paralysis in his legs. He was unable to walk. And so now the people... See, there's this young boy who was the grandson, a prince under the cruel king Saul in line for the throne. Look, he can't even walk. He surely will be cast aside and killed by the new king, King David, because he is trouble. He is worthless. He does not belong. And yet, David, the new king in his kindness, not only gave him his life, he also restored the inheritance he would have received from his grandfather Saul. Not only did he stop there, but David took Mephibosheth into his own home. He gave him a place in his family. He treated him as a son. He gave him a place at his table in the palace. That's the kindness of God reigning through David in the moment. And that is exactly, exactly what God has done for us in Christ kingdom of the prince of the power of this heir to which we once followed. He has no real power. He will not stand. We may have followed him once, but, but we don't belong there either. So Christ in his kindness gathers us up, brings us into home, gives us an inheritance, makes us one of his. That's what God does for us in Christ. And how does he do that? Well, it's by the miracle called the new birth. Listen to verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, no, but in accordance with His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. The phrase I want to highlight here is by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The, the word washing literally means that. It means to be bathed all over. It, it's the act of bathing. When a broken person, a lost person, a deceived person, deep and filthy with sin, and that is every one of us. It's how we enter into this world. It's not them. It's all of us were there apart from Christ. When a broken, lost, and deceived person trusts in Jesus, This thing called regeneration happens. We are washed clean. We are given new life. That's what regeneration means. We have a recreated existence. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 says that the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I've been made a a new creation. And yeah, there's a lot of of, of mystery involved in this. And, And much mystery that we can dive into for every one of the years that we have together until the end. But I want to to alleviate a little bit of the mystery from it by explaining it this way, simply that before Christ, you were just you. You were all alone, and it was just you. And Romans 1.21 tells us that apart from Christ, when it was just me and it was just you, we had zero, none, no understanding at all of spiritual things. We were completely blind to the fact that there was more going on in existence than the things that we just get up and see with our eyes. 
We wouldn't even know that there was truth to a spiritual realm, a God and warfare and a king who will come again and restore all things and make all things new again. We would have no clue on our own that any of that was taking place. But when we trusted Jesus, what we're told is what Jesus told Nicodemus, that you must be born of the Spirit. And what we learn that to mean is that in conversion, we are born again. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. It's no longer just you. You died, you resurrected, and there's nothing on this earth that could bring a dead thing to life other than a God who died and resurrected once again. And when you trust in Him, the Holy Spirit who is God indwells in you and you're alone no longer. Your eyes are opened, your heart is opened, your mind is opened to new power, to new privilege, to new identity, to a new place and opportunity in this world and in the age to come. It's no longer just you. Romans 5.5 5 says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 8.9 says, however, you're not in the flesh any longer, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In Christ, you're brand new. You're made new. You're not what you once were. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 2, I died. <laughs> it's no longer I who live. That, 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 that person is gone. It's a whole new person. This person doesn't exist apart from a holy and unique union with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you if you're a Christian. He's here. He's empowering you. He's, he's illuminating you. He's giving you place. He's transforming you. Or in other words, God in Christ by the Holy Spirit is making it possible for us to be Christ-like in the way that we see, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live our lives, the way that we interact with each other, and the way that we live out there. And that points us to a third remembrance we have to see this new identity and live in it. We must remember who we now are in Christ, who we were, how change comes to us. And once that change has come and is growing up in our lives, we must remember who we now are in Christ. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs. It's a big word here. We would be made heirs heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you're a Christian, this says the Bible declares that you are an heir. You're an heir of God. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. That's who we are. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, that's a massive statement fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. I'm going to dive deeper into Romans 8 at the beginning of, of 2022. We're going to spend eight weeks in Romans chapter 8, so I, I won't go far down the road here, but the idea of being a co-heir with Christ is massive, it's amazing, and it's completely confounding how that can be true. What does it mean to be a co-heir with Christ? Well, it means this, and in context of what Paul is saying to Titus, it means that we are in Christ so fully members of his family. 
We are so fully forgiven, so fully accepted, so fully redeemed, so fully brought into his table that when God looks at us now, if you are in Christ, he doesn't see the shameful past. What he sees is a younger sibling of Jesus Christ himself. He sees a younger daughter, a a younger uh, sister, a younger brother of Jesus Christ himself when he looks at you, sharing in what Peter calls an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. And Paul is saying to Titus, remember this, Christian. Remember who you are and live each day and every moment in light of this truth. Younger sibling of Jesus. And I want to say this again, and as I do, I want you to really consider the implications and all of the applications of this truth on your life in this moment. Remember this, that in Christ, you are truly a child of God. You are not alone. You are so fully accepted, so amazingly fully loved, so fully forgiven, that when God looks at you, He says, that is my child. And the inheritance that is in store, oh, if you've had one good day, that is nothing compared to the day when he returns and he wipes away every tear and you enjoy the inheritance as a son of the king forever. You're no longer bound to live deceived, as verse 3 described, no no longer bound to live foolishly, no longer bound to be enslaved to various sins, no longer should your life be spent always wanting, always warring, always proving, always justifying, always wondering, who am I and where do I belong? Remember in in Simba's story, I told you that when he walked apart from who he truly was, he experienced suffering in his life. He, He was hiding who he was, but it wasn't just him. The whole kingdom suffered when Simba refused to live as who he was made to be, but the story continues. And when Simba heard the call, remember, remember who you are, he takes off and he runs. And though pain and trouble is coming and though he is not certain what the next day is going to look like, when he stepped into the role and the life that he was made for, he flourished. And not just he, but the kingdom flourished. It wasn't easy. It was difficult and it was scary, but when he lived as the son of the king, the kingdom flourished because he lived as who he was made to be. And the same thing will be true if you live each day in light of who you have been made to be in Christ, remembering who you were apart from Jesus, remembering how change comes to your life, that it wasn't anything that you did or had to learn. It wasn't a degree or a book or a class that you took or certain boxes. Well, I did enough praying and I did enough giving and I did enough learning. No, it was in accordance with God's mercy when His kindness and His full love in Christ came for you. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that the threefold memory of what we were of how change has been wrought and of what we now are will serve to create, remember in context of this passage, the spirit of subjection to authority that they were struggling with in Crete, to understand how to live a life where you have people surrounding you, culture surrounding you that's deep in sin. How do I posture myself in this place, honoring my calling to God and at the same time living within the world that I I live in? Well, 
When you remember these things, it will create the spirit of subjection to authority. It will equip us for honest toil, honest work. It will silence all evil speech before it leaves our tongues, hopefully, and generate in us, in our hearts, an unceasing compassion. I want you to hear this. Everything in your life that is not in submission to the Word of God, not in submission to the will of God, not in submission to the way of Jesus, not in submission to the Spirit of God, will seek to undermine this remembrance in your life. And it all won't look like scary, evil, dark things. Your children will seek to undermine this remembrance in your life. When chaos ensues and your best hopes and and desires aren't being met, Your children will seek to undermine your remembrance of who you are in Christ. Your work will seek to undermine the remembrance of who you are in Christ. Politics and the government have so twisted up the minds of church people that they can't separate their politics from their theology on either end of it. And it's causing people to forget who they once were, how they were changed, and who they now are in Christ. Culture around us, even disputes among us will seek to cause us to forget who we are so that we won't walk in it and we won't apply it in the moments that we most need to. Where do you right now most need to remember who you are? I've been looking at this question this week. I've been been practicing asking myself this question this week. I didn't I didn't realize how many times a a day I might need to ask myself that question over and over again, and how many little ways I find the world and, and, and the circumstances of my life challenging, seeking to undermine my remembrance. Where do you most right now need to remember who you are? Maybe it's a conflict that you're involved in. And it has your heart and your mind so twisted and entangled that, that you can't see straight and you need to remember who you are. Maybe it's goals, maybe it's ambition, maybe it, th- those aren't bad things innately, but, but maybe somehow they have come to reign and rule in your life in a way that is not honoring to God. Maybe they've become idols that have taken the place of God. Maybe you have closed your mind and heart to the will and way of God and the movement of the Spirit in your life because you have set for your life where you should be going. And maybe today you need to remember, you need to remember who you were, how change came to you and who you are in Christ. I want to give you some time to reflect on this question this morning, and not just to, to try to answer it in your own strength, but to, to take this question before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit's help in illuminating an answer to you. Lord, where do I most need to apply my identity in Christ in this moment? Where are the challenges to that? And I hope and I pray that not only would you find answer, but that you might invite the gospel to reign in that place and in that area of your life. Where do you most need to remember who you are? And as you take a moment to consider that question, I join with the prayer of Paul to the Ephesians when he says in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you might know what's the hope of his calling that you might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance 
in the saints. That's you. And what is the surpassing greatness of his, Holy, of his power toward us, those of us who believe? I pray the eyes of your heart would be open to know in Christ who you already are in here. And all that has been set apart for you by the Holy Spirit. And that you would remember who you are, that we would remember who we are so that we would be a humble people. That we would remember who we are so that we might take even greater delight in our salvation. And that we would remember so that the world out there would experience the joy of our salvation. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to consider this question before the Lord and then I'll come back and pray with you in a moment. Take some time. Also in the pastoral epistles, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power who saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Retain the sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard them through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Would you pray with me? God, would you, not just in this moment, but as we leave this place, help us to weigh the implications and applications of who we once were apart from you. How you came for us in kindness and love to do what we could never do or even know to do. And who we truly are once we've trusted in Jesus for life and salvation. Awaken our hearts, God. Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts to your presence, to your power. Remind us again and again who we are, that we wouldn't be a people who walk in spiritual depression. No, not the sons and daughters of God. My goodness, no. Awaken our hearts to the truth that we're children of the living God, co-heirs with Christ. waiting for the day of his return that we might celebrate for all time life as it was intended in the first place. Give us strength and fortitude and grit in the days that we wait. That as life seeks to undermine all that you have written on our hearts, we would not be ashamed of the gospel. We would live in the gospel, delighting in you each day, celebrating your grace in such a way that the world around experiences our joy. Help us where we're weak. In Jesus' name, amen. 